I see a lot of conversation of people saying, you know, inflation is the devil and, and you know, deflation is what things should be. You can hike interest rates and they will uh, lower inflation because they will kill demand. Um, but, sure. <laughs> you know, that's a little bit like uh, if you kill the patient, he won't have asthma anymore, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> As an academic economist, I love Bitcoin and I love crypto because it's just... I bet, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting experiment, right? I can feel the, uh, the tension and the anger of, of, a few <laughs> of a few enthusiasts right now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Plain Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Coffin. We are today here again with another guest. Uh, one I'm really excited about. This is a guest who I've seen a few of his videos on YouTube and while still a smaller channel, I think he's putting out really great content. This is the host of the YouTube channel Money in Macro and we are joined today by Dr. Yuri Shasfort. Uh, Dr. Yuri Shasfort was up until recently a postdoctoral research fellow in the University of Cape Town. Uh, currently does a few lectures in the Netherlands and has put together a number of masters and online courses. And now we spend some time on YouTube covering economic policy. Uh, the first economist we've had on the channel. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, Yuri, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. So we're going to hop into a lot of the fun topics that I'm sure, and I've seen you cover these things plenty of times on your channel. Uh, whenever you have, you do a couple Q&A sessions where this seems to be the main topic. I'm going to make you repeat a lot of that <laughs> for the sake of our viewers, but a lot of interesting topics we're going to talk about, you know, very high level things that <clears throat> I think a lot of people are just really interested in these days, given headlines and things like that. But before I hop into that, for viewers who might not have come across Money in Macro, could you give a bit of a, an explainer as to what kind of content you post on your YouTube channel? Yes, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's, it's already a little bit in the name in the sense that, uh, my, my channel is all about uh, monetary economics and macroeconomics. Um, and besides that, you could also say that I'm just a, an economics channel, but my main focus is on, uh, yeah, on, this, on these topics and then specifically central banking, also a little bit of finance, uh, but mostly behavioral finance. And then uh, like a very big focus on, uh, on macroeconomics. And my, my goal there has, is really to sort of leverage my academic background uh, but try to do it differently from what I do at university. So I do try to use as little jargon as possible. Uh, I try to right. really sort of boil it down to, to the essentials and also make it a little bit entertaining. Um, but yeah, it's up to the viewer to, to see if, that, uh, if, if I succeeded in that, of course. <laughs> yeah, economics can be tough uh, with especially jargon and things like that because I think especially modern day economics you know it's it's gone pretty complex in some areas and uh you know and we'll touch a bit about how a lot of people you know when it comes to even pretty general things some people have misconceptions about very you know uh fundamental things about economics uh why did you want to start money macro what kind of encouraged you to put these videos on youtube about economics yeah, so I, I think there, there are two, two reasons for this, like one very immediate and very uh, practical and one uh, more sort of, um, yeah, you could say ideological. Uh, let's, sure. <laughs> let's start with, uh, with that one or it, it's, it's more about my long term goals. So I've always right. been super interested in economics. That's why I decided to do a PhD in economics and, and pursue research in, on that subject. Um, but the thing is that I've also always been really 
interested in doing video and that's why I was from early on involved in making some online courses for several Dutch universities and trying to um, yeah, explain sort of uh, some of the economic concepts in, in, a, in a fun and interesting way with animations and all of that because uh, it, it, I found it always, it's just the subject, everybody, everybody, but you know, everybody loves to talk about it, you know, at the dinner table, sure, for yeah. example, right? Yeah. Uh, but then if you're just explaining uh, stuff as an economist there, it's super difficult to, to properly explain some of these topics. And so that, for me, the visual aspect really helps. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've done this for, for a long time to make these videos. And then lockdown happened in Cape Town, which was extremely strict. We just couldn't leave the house. Uh, and um, I had already actually bought the, the stuff, like the camera and, and all of that. But okay, yeah. This is because uh, even those stores were closed, like even the online shops, it was, it was crazy. But, um, but that really allowed me to, to pursue this because, yeah, well, as you very well know, making these videos takes a lot of time. So uh, Lockdown and Cape Town helped me to, to get it all started. Right. And I also saw on YouTube more economics videos popping up. Um, and hence that gave the signal to me like it's not just me who wants to make these there are also people who want to uh, want to watch these yeah i think the last few years has really drawn attention to finance and economics you know especially you know when we have the pandemic uh we're still kind of in that post 2008 uh period where we've seen policies from that were enacted from 2008 still in effect uh today uh i think and, you know, maybe it's with people being stuck at home. There's been a lot of interest in those sort of things. And, you know, I saw the same thing with my own channel. I think I started it in 2017 and it was just steadily interest in investing, at least investing videos seem to grow over time. Uh, but I, I really like your content because like you said, you do come it from, you do come at it from an economist's standpoint, uh, you know, someone with that education to back what they say. And I think, you know, when you look at, uh, economics YouTube videos there can be a lot of sensationalist stuff out there um, some misrepresented stuff and I think it's it's helpful to have people with that passion and that know-how about the subject to you know talk about it. it's not to say that amateurs can't talk about economics I think that's you know you don't want to gatekeep topics but I, I think there's a lot of value in that and uh, I, I think a lot of people will continue to, there'll be a growing interest in those sorts of things um, so with that out of the way, uh, you are based in the Netherlands, that's correct? Yes, yes, I am. So here in Canada, we have a pretty US-centric uh, look at the economy. You know, sure, we have the Canadian economy, which, you know, focuses on oil and financials and things like that. Uh, but a lot of our news talks about the US inflation in the US, quantitative easing in the US. Do you see the same thing in Europe uh, with, you know, kind of that... American-centric view? Yeah, I do actually, but to a lesser extent, um, because, okay. you know, I, I obviously like to follow macroeconomic news mostly. Um, and right. there, I think it has really helped that as a Eurozone, that, you know, and, and the European Union in general is also a very large and sort of powerful economic block. Um, of course, yeah. So I think that that's part of it because Canada is just, you know, a fraction of the size, economically speaking, uh, of the United States. Um, mm -hmm. But but that being said, like even um, here in the Netherlands, uh, U.S. economic news dominates um, for, for two reasons, I think. Uh, one is that we generally tend to speak English 
as a second language and hence we can actually understand what's going on whereas right we don't speak french or even german uh to to the same extent um so i think that's that's one part of it but the second is that just looking at macroeconomics um the dollar is is the global reserve currency and so you know what the fed does has real consequences all over the world yeah and i think you know and again i i kind of focus on the example I know, like in Canada, we hear inflation news, but there's honestly more of a focus on US inflation than there is even Canadian inflation, even though we, we kind of are seeing a similar, you know, when you talk about consumer prices, we're seeing similar rates here in Canada to the US. Uh, but most of the headlines are about inflation in the US. And it's because of that point you touch on, which uh, for viewers who aren't aware, the US dollar, even though, you know, it's obviously the main currency of the US uh, economy, it's an, it has international implications, which is why so many people care about the U.S. inflation and U.S. quantitative easing and things like that. With that as well, I think that growing interest in economics we've talked about, I think we've seen a lot of people, when it comes to the U.S. dollar, we've seen a lot of opinions kind of pop up in terms of, you know, what should be done and things like that. And that's kind of where, you know, you talk about the dinner table conversations about things like inflation and, and whatnot uh, kind of come into play. Do you think when it comes to things like inflation and these concepts, do you think there's, uh, you know, people generally have a good idea of what these concepts are? Or do you think there's misinformation out there? Because, you know, I, talk, I sometimes talk about inflation and I feel like every time I talk about inflation, uh, there'll be comments, people in the comment section fighting out what the definition of inflation is and things like that. Uh, so as so having someone as an economist come on, uh, I think I'll, I'll bug you with the question with, What's your view on inflation? What is inflation to you? Uh, is it good, bad? What's the definition from the academic standpoint? Yeah, yeah. So first, I want to say that I actually watched your video on inflation, and I thought it was a, a rather good one. Um, oh, good. <laughs> that's that's very encouraging to hear from uh, from someone with the with more of a background in it than me. So that's great. Yeah, but you know, before you get too excited, it's also because okay. I think the bar, <laughs> because the bar yeah. is really low on YouTube. Uh, okay. so, Fair. <laughs> no, I'm just. I'm, it, it was objectively good, I think. But uh, oh, yeah, I appreciate that. The bar is also really low, I think, in the sense that there's just so much sensationalist stuff out there, and it's also mm. just that people are just talking. They're not really talking to each other in the sense that they just they use different definitions sometimes. Like I. Like you, I, I sometimes get comments who say, no, no, inflation is about the money supply expanding. That is inflation. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. But like that's not what most people use these days. So it's very confusing if you... Because they told me, and, and I looked it up, and, and this is true. This used to be the old definition of inflation. Uh, however, right. the reason that economists stop using only... Stop looking only at the money supply is that the money supply and the CPI or consumer price index have really mm. decoupled in, in some major economies. Um, and there have been many sort of econometric studies that have looked at the correlation there. And, you know, even they tried to find sort of a causal effect, of course, and they just couldn't mm. find it. Uh, for example, especially Japan, like I just invite people to, to look up any measure of the money supply in Japan you want. M1, uh, which is only central bank money, M2, which includes right. private bank money and even M3, which includes uh, sort of shadow bank money, uh, which is a whole topic in itself. But uh, and then look at the CPI. Well, we all know, I think that uh, Japan had a deflation problem. 
but the money supply just increased uh, tremendously in Japan, or actually very similar to uh, Europe and the United States. But there's just not there's not even a correlation there in Japan. Uh, yeah, in uh, in the U.S. and Europe there is a correlation, but even then the question is: um, Is inflation a supply and demand phenomena, and does money creation sort of follow those prices? Because if prices go up first then, of course, the money supply will follow because, you know, uh, most of the money these days is created by private banks. So if all mm-hmm. prices increase, then people will ask for higher loans. So it's not clear that it's um, it's just money printing. Of course, if you do massive money printing, you will have inflation. Right. Sure. Yeah, for sure. And, and we've seen examples of that, for sure, like in terms of hyperinflation and and. You know, there have been lessons <laughs> in, ter- in the past, you know, with aggressive money printing. But uh, yeah, you, and Japan's a really good example that, that you hit on as to why it's not as, as clear a connection as, you know, money printing equals higher prices. Because we had that in Japan and, and yet, you know, prices went down. Um, what's your thought on criticisms of the consumer price index? So for people who might not be aware, uh, one of the main, you know, call it the official measures of inflation is CPI, Consumer Price Index, which just measures a basket of goods and, and how its price changes over time. Um, a lot of people kind of discredit that in the, you know, on social media and stuff, you'll see a lot of people, you know, kind of laughing at figures that, that show CPI rates and things like that. Um, what are your thoughts on, I guess I'd have you explain, you know, what are kind of some of the main criticisms of the CPI and, and what are your thoughts on that? Do you think uh, they're justified these criticisms, or do you think uh, you know maybe there's shortcomings, but it's still worth using that more than money supply? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's I'm really happy that you're asking me this question because I just finished um, recording a, a massive video on summarizing the whole inflation debate at the moment, um, and there Great. I also okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I also go into um, you know what is the CPI just sort of a, a recap which is indeed measuring consumer prices um, however consumer prices are not all prices and it's also just really difficult to measure sort of uh, the weight that you should give to various types of products uh, because you know right. people use uh, I, I think I mentioned in my video they they, they use like cars um, way more than they support me on Patreon for example, right? So if I raise my patron tiers or something like that, uh, then the impact on inflation will be very limited. Uh, Whereas cars prices have a massive impact or rent as well, right? Um, Right, So economists measure this. However, um, I think there are two aspects to this in the sense that some of the criticism that you mentioned has always been there. Um, And we can get into that. However, at the moment, I think CPI is... A little bit busted but the reason for that is because of the pandemic uh in the sense that so you you have to imagine that the economists update these weights in line with Mm -hmm. the changes in society like for example you know in the 1910s we used a lot of candles whereas these days you know we have cell phones so you need to account for that however then in the pandemic in 2020 there was just this massive shift in consumer behavior in the sense that we all started buying uh, new cell phones, new laptops, cameras to start a YouTube channel, uh, you know, <laughs> right. that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and we stopped consuming uh, a lot of sort of uh, services, 
So, you know, even not going to the hairdresser, but also for, for a longer time not going to a restaurant. And this had massive implications for these weights that they typically use to measure this. And they just didn't update those. So I think there, um, where I'll give the critics some, some points, they point to it. They say, like, CPI is, is so low. Uh, but if we if we feel sort of our own price increase pain, it's much higher. Uh, and especially right. last year, this was totally true because the weights had not been updated. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think with uh, you know changing consumer behavior, obviously there are some adjustments made with with CPI measurements like that. But that is one of the main criticisms. You know, consumer behaviors can change on the monthly, if not you know certainly on the yearly. And when you have something like a pandemic, you know, <laughs> it makes me think of things like toilet paper and those kind of rushes for certain products. You know, I'm not saying toilet paper should be our main indication of inflation, but it does show that, you know, uh, maybe it was a, a higher weight in terms of people's lives than it was before, you know, small things like that. Um, but I, I think it all goes to illustrate a point, uh, which you're definitely uh, demonstrating that inflation's a bit more complicated than I think a lot of people assume. Um, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it and, and kind of on the, the money supply note that we were talking about earlier, you know, back in 2008 with the financial crisis, that's when the U.S. really started doing its quantitative easing, you know, that kind of experiment, if you will, uh, buying bonds and trying to support the credit markets that way. And we had money creation since 2008, you know, there's been money creation. Uh, but I remember there was one article I read that kind of showed that, you know, some of this money creation, even though there is money being created, it wasn't necessarily being injected into the economy. You know, there was a lot of uh, financial institutions that held on to this extra credit and they weren't necessarily lending it out and things like that. And so it didn't translate into a direct price increase for a lot of goods, which is why you see that, you know, after 2008, we had a period of pretty low CPI measured inflation. Um, so I think, and, and you know, <laughs> these days we kind of talked about it, but, you know, it does seem like there's a lot of amateur economists, you know, a lot of people <laughs> love to give their, their thoughts. And I, I do think, you know, things like cryptocurrencies and uh, gold, especially, you know, those kind of crowds draw a lot of attention to that argument as well. I think those are kind of the two main proponents of, of you know, inflation is money creation, uh, the gold and the cryptocurrency community. Um, but I, I, you know, regardless of what you think the definition is, when it comes to rising consumer prices and the expenses of what we face directly, it's more of a complicated relationship. It's not a one-to-one -one relation. Uh, no, as you true, true. But I do think that um, what, what I will try to do in this next video, but also just generally on my channel, what, what I do think um, that sort of economists have failed at is they have never really uh, provided a good alternative. Because um, mm. this story, like money printing uh, causes inflation, is, is very simple and it's intuitive. And in some cases, it's also true. So, um, but if you then, like, and I, I, I sense it already a little bit in our discussion, sort of it's um, it's easy for us to say, no, 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 it's actually more complex and blah, blah. But then I think it's as YouTube creators, you know, uh, we are in the perfect <laughs> spot to then also provide an alternative because it's not, it's not rocket science. Mm. It's not like, oh, it's more difficult than that, but we're not gonna explain, you know, why. Because mm -hmm. uh, in the end, inflation is is uh, the interplay of total or aggregate supply and aggregate demand. So what we have right. seen, for example, is massive supply chain disruptions, and mm -hmm. so that that is that that's also a um, a logical theory of inflation, 
meaning that uh, sort of if overall supply plummets but demand stays the same you know prices mm -hmm. are very likely to rise um, and then even if we go then to the demand side there that's where you will find the money printing because money printing doesn't magically increase prices uh, it does so via, via increased demand and supply that cannot really keep up right um, right so that's you know part of demand uh, pool inflation but then what we discussed earlier um, where when saying you know demand can also increase and then money might follow uh, that comes in when and I'm, I'm not sure how many of your viewers have uh, done economics uh, in, in in school uh, but there's the Phillips curve which is a very this is sort of what they teach in school uh, very often or in universities as the, mm -hmm. the main theory of inflation which which is basically like if the economy is overheating if if unemployment is extremely low then what will happen uh, workers will have a lot of money to spend but mm -hmm. the production can't really increase much more because you know we're at full employment or close to right so that could also cause inflation um, and then finally because in the 70s we had uh, a massive bout of uh, inflation and economists couldn't explain it with any of these theories or not fully then we got the um, inflation expectations theory which basically means if people expect inflation to go up next year then it will because they will uh, set the prices at the start of the year or ask uh, with their union they will demand more wages right and hence prices will increase and i think these are the four main channels uh, through which uh, inflation can occur so supply push demand pull with money printing and um, and uh, phillips curve and then inflation right. expectations so it's not super complicated but it's a bit more right. complicated than just yeah. money printing i would say yeah, and, and you kind of touched on it as well, you know, with the current belt we've seen. So that's obviously one reason inflation is in the news a lot lately is we've seen consumer prices increase more than they have in a few decades in the U.S. Um, you know, I think the most recent rate was around 6%. Uh, but at the same time, you know, sure, we have seen money supply increasing since 2008, and that's kind of often put as the scapegoat as what's causing this inflation. And it's not to say there's not a relationship there. You know, I think it would be foolish to disregard money creation as, as, as a factor, you know, I think any reasonable economist would consider that. But we do also have these, you know, rare and pretty catastrophic supply chain disruptions. And, you know, you can't discount that as well. I think that's a really big impact. Uh, so yeah, I think you, that's a great explanation, you know, the multitude of factors at play. And it's kind of a tug of war, right? You know, you might have one that's a positive factor for inflation, one that's a negative factor, and they're all working to, to establish what actually happens in the economy. Um, that's why we need to look at inflation from, from these different perspectives, because then we can understand it better. And we can also figure out the proper policy response, because if it's demand driven, you know, you should hike interest rates. But if it's a supply chain issue and the statistics being messed up, you can hike interest rates and they will uh, lower inflation because they will kill demand. Um, but, sure. <laughs> you know, that's a little bit like uh, if you kill the patient, he won't have asthma anymore, right? Like, yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and you know, that's it. And, and I think a lot of people are critical and, and, you know, justifiably so. And we'll actually get on into that in a second about, you know, the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell and how aggressive he's been with, with monetary policy. Uh, there is a fine line, you know, with inflation and tackling inflation. You know, yes, 
I think most people can agree no one wants inflation to get out of hand. And fortunately, I do think the Federal Reserve historically, uh, in terms of consumer prices, has been a bit ruthless in preserving the value of the US dollar. And I think that's one reason it's become a world currency, right? Um, on the other hand, you know, if things are done too quickly, there is the risk of a really painful recession. And there are some economists, or at, at the very least pundits, <laughs> who have argued that every recession in history has been caused by interest rates or, you know, sort of monetary policy. Now, that's, mm -hmm. that's a pretty bold claim, but there is a relationship there. You know, we do mm -hmm. tend to see higher interest rates and the negative impact that can have. Um, on, the, on the note of monetary policy and, and things like that, why is it that a lot of central banks look to target low inflation rate? You did touch about the Phillips curve, and I think that might be part of the explanation. But why is it that central banks think, you know, obviously no central banks trying to get like 10% inflation, but 2% is a pretty common target. Yeah. Why is that for someone who might not fully understand that? Yeah, that's it's it's to be honest, it's a bit arbitrary, the 2%. Okay. Um, However, uh, I think where it comes from is that um, central banks have had experience with inflation and deflation. And generally, their goal is to have a stable currency. You know, I, right. I know people will argue 2% on year on year will have an effect and so it's not stable. But that's much more stable than what, what you know, Turkey is seeing today. Like, like uh, Sure. Yeah. It's better than 10% or, or higher. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and most people could agree with that. <laughs> but um, I think that central banks have seen that what's even worse than or than this these levels of inflation i'm not talking about hyperinflation that's the worst but right. uh, like 10 20 percent inflation what's even worse is 10 20 percent deflation and and that's for i think for two main reasons one is uh, the theory of debt deflation meaning that if you have extremely high deflation that's that was unexpected uh, then borrowers will get into massive trouble because their income, like if they're a small business, for example, and they have to reduce their prices, their income is mm. shrinking, and so they cannot repay their debt. And so they default, and so there's less demand, uh, yeah. and so you will likely see more deflation. So there's this positive feedback loop, and I don't mean it in a positive way, but uh, it means like more deflation, more defaults, more deflation, right. more defaults. And so that's a very famous concept in economics um, that, that central bankers want to avoid at all costs. That's something we had in the or in the United States they had in the Great Recession, for example. Um, right. And then second is central bankers often say, look, deflation is bad because then people don't want to spend their currency. They want to hold on to it. And for any, any economy, you need people to spend their currency. Mm -hmm. um, however, I personally think that at 2%, this is a non-issue. But right. Bitcoin is an amazing example where you see that if you have 20% deflation or more, which Bitcoin, if you treat it as a currency, had last year, maybe up until now. I don't know how far it's fallen already. But uh, uh, then you actually see that people stop using it as money. Um, I think, for example, you do see that some merchants accept Bitcoin for payment because they expect it to go up. But right. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to pay, like most Bitcoin aficionados are not going to pay their their bills with Bitcoin because, you know, then the next day Bitcoin is worth uh, so much more. And so they essentially overpaid for, for their new, let's say, furniture or whatever they bought with it. Right. So so let's hop into that. Um, obviously, that's something I think, especially I, I'm talking anecdotally from, you know, 
my comment section in, in YouTube. So a very small population or sample size, if you will. But um, it does seem that a lot of people, you know, who are, and we touched on it earlier, who are pro Bitcoin are also pro deflation and, and things like that. You know, I see a lot of conversation of people saying, you know, inflation is the devil and, and you know, deflation is what things should be. And, you know, you, you touched on, you know, you don't see 2% deflation as necessarily being as catastrophic as it might have been painted. Uh, what are your views on, you know, those kind of comments and its relation to Bitcoin? And on top of that, what are your views on Bitcoin as being a currency? Obviously, that's how it kind of started off. Some people treat it differently today. But from the economist standpoint, <laughs> what are your thoughts on, on Bitcoin? And it's not looking for a buy or sell recommendation, but just theoretically <laughs> where where's your head at when it comes to cryptocurrencies and, and limited supply and those types of things yeah so i mean i as an as an academic economist i love bitcoin and i love crypto because it's just i bet yeah <laughs> it's it's a very interesting experiment right what they have done um and they have defied the odds um mm-hmm. but as you mentioned there actually there's a very strange um uh, sort of theoretical uh, love uh, relationship between sort of the gold crowd and the the Bitcoin crowd, uh, which right. I think is is also fascinating, but very strange because, um, you know, uh, what they have in common is that they have a fixed supply, right? And so they think mm-hmm. that will guarantee deflation. Well, that's not always the case because, you know, inflate, uh, Bitcoin had I think like you know 11% deflation over the last week or so uh, inflation mm-hmm. ex- excuse me inflation because it uh, dropped in value quite a lot and supply right. didn't change so mm-hmm. but um, I mean in the long term I think they have a point that if you restrict supply you will likely get a deflationary system um, mm-hmm. however what I think is very ironic is that what was a big part about um, the gold sort of um, school of thought um, or Austrian economics uh, is that this is commodity money, meaning that it has intrinsic value, whereas Bitcoin, uh, in essence, is is the ultimate, the most daring uh, fiat currency out there. Where I I use the word fiat in the sense, you know, of I think it comes from Latin, being trust, trust in a currency. Bitcoin has zero value, of course. It's purely based on trust. I know most um, sort of Bitcoin and gold <laughs> aficionados associate fiat currencies with government because that's trust in the government. But Bitcoin right. is trust in the people who use Bitcoin. It's the and ultimate fiat currency in a way, but with a restricted right. supply. And I think that tension is really interesting to see. Yeah, I, I can feel the uh, the tension and the anger of, of a few <laughs> of a few enthusiasts right now as, as you're saying that. But yeah, I, it's an interesting point. And I think, uh, you know, from reading, you know, comments and things like that. I think a lot of the excitement about cryptocurrencies and stuff, you know, you say it's trust in people, they'll say it's it's trust in the technology. And and I think, you know, like you say, it's, it is an interesting experiment to say, look, we're going to set this thing in code and then let it go in the wild. And no one's going to have control over, individually control over this code and it's going to be fixed. Uh, and let's see what happens. Uh, but it does, you know, and, and to touch on it being a, a currency, you know, it does raise interesting questions, you know, uh, is it a good currency if, if its value fluctuates very frequently and, and it's very difficult? When you think of like core Bitcoin outside of exchanges and things like that, where it's not really, you know, blockchain transactions directly, it's it's through a third party. If you're talking about core Bitcoin transactions, uh, it's very difficult to do Bitcoin transactions efficiently. Um, 
what's fascinating about this is that what you're seeing in the crypto space right now, I'm very interested in, is uh, decentralized finance and it's uh, stable coins in particular. They are fascinating to me because I think the market uh, is, is seeing this failure of Bitcoin, not as a speculative asset, that, that it, it's spectacularly successful. Um, right, <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> but they're seeing its failure as money. And so in the crypto space, there are all sorts of initiatives now that seek to address that. And these are stable coins. And their aim is actually to have a stable value. Um, and I think mm -hmm. these are extremely interesting. Um, I've had some conversations on my channel with uh, people who run uh, or who are, are in a company who runs some of these stablecoin projects. Uh, however, they're actually the irony is that the most of them actually uh what they do is they buy u.s government debt and then they monetize this they, they tokenize this they would say um and so oh, okay in uh, and then you can use these to buy bitcoin for example but that's of course extremely iron uh, there's there's huge irony in that for for two reasons like one is this is money printing on a massive scale uh within right. crypto uh, and two is they are monetizing the U.S. government's debt, you know, right? <laughs> Using the U.S. debt as a, to back its its value. Yeah, that is that's you know almost a bastardization of the the whole intent behind cryptocurrency. I do think a lot of cryptocurrency popularity has come from uh, call it distrust or or you know uh, grudges against central banks like the Federal Reserve primarily. You know, people thinking that they've mishandled the U.S. dollar. Uh, not trusting the the government or the central bank to do the right thing when it comes to uh, you know currency production and things like that. Do you think fears or, or distrust of central banks are justified? Is justified? Do you think uh, you know? And and do you think that that's playing a role in why cryptocurrencies have been you know proliferating as they have been? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both. Uh, yes, I, I would say. Um, <laughs> And I think this also touches upon something that, that we haven't yet discussed in the inflation discussion in the sense that um, because I always find myself because I'm on YouTube sort of this uh, money printing uh, narrative is so big. I always find myself sort of, you know, being a little bit contrarian on that, um, mm. that I find myself defending uh, low interest rates and quantitative easing. Uh, or at least pointing out, like, like, you know, it's not exactly money printing. It's different for very important reasons. Uh, right, but yeah. I am not a big fan of very low interest rates and, and even less so of quantitative easing, but not because of inflation, but because of its effect on asset prices. Uh, and because right. I do think what we have seen for the for the last you know decade even already um, is something is a process that's called financialization um, in economics literature. And it means that an economy is 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 moving away from producing uh, real stuff, like you know, like a, a teacher, mm. the lawyer. Uh, uh, okay, you could argue if the lawyer is producing real stuff, but uh, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> you catch my drift. Like, sure. Yeah. Um, to uh, many many people now making much more money than that just by pure speculation on houses, on stocks, um, on cryptocurrencies, um, and and I think that is something that needs to be a topic that needs to be explored a little bit from the macroeconomic perspective what does what's the impact of something like this like especially housing um on a society on an economy um i think that people sense that our economic system is a bit out of balance is a bit out of whack is a bit unfair 
Uh, and I think they sense it intuitively, and I think that therefore they're also sort of gravitating towards you know, more populist economic theories in a, in a way you could call it like that in the sense that they have a simple solution. Right? It's just simple. Right. Um, just limit supply <laughs> yeah, and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's it's the responsibility of, of economists um, to come up with alternative explanations, uh, but also solutions to this kind of stuff. Um, so that that's partly what I, I want to dedicate also my channel a little bit to in the upcoming years. Um, right. But I think I only half answered your question. Well, so, well, I, I had actually watched a, a, one of your videos where you explored the creation of central banks. And I think within the first minute, <laughs> one of the things you say is, I understand some of the conspiracy theories out there about central banks. Yeah. Um, so liars. I, they're I, liars, I guess, Richard. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think you touched on in the video that a lot of them started off as private institutions. You know, these were money generating businesses for people um so uh, you know and and i think when it comes to central banks you know i don't necessarily support conspiracy theories out there and and I, i'm in the same boat as you actually i think there's a lot of comments that are easily you know quick to to down like uh, i guess misclassify certain actions from the federal reserve and central banks and you know you end up going and trying to clarify stuff and it sounds like you're defending these actions but it's just to say no like this is just misunderstood it's still a risk. <laughs> There's still factors. And then, you know, I think any economist would look at these things and say, things are pretty crazy right now with a lot of these factors. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the understanding around them is possibly even crazier. <laughs> um, yeah. Kind of on that note, what do you think is one of the more misunderstood uh, economic concepts out there? You know, and, and this might be anecdotally with your YouTube channel, you know, obviously we probably both get pretty crazy comments from time to time from people about certain things based on your experience, whether it be academic or through YouTube, what do you think are one or, or two of the most misunderstood things when it comes to economics? Yeah. Yeah. I think, so I think one is, is actually money uh, and especially credit money because sort of what we now have is, is very much is credit money is debt money. I also made uh, one right. or two videos about this, like banks create money um, but that's not money for, for them, that's money for us. So they still can go broke, for example. Um, but right, it, go, it, right. it also goes a little bit deeper than that in, in the sense that it's very easy for us to think that sort of um, commodity money barter was the natural way uh, for economies and that we've deviated from that. But a lot of people um, are like credit is very natural in a, in a sense like it's, it's very key to any human um, civilization in the sense mm. that you know if you do something for me like you, you invite me on an interview on your channel i'm i'm very right. much obliged to return the favor and this <laughs> is the way friends very often act um sure. subconsciously and so what mm. i think is is very interesting about uh debt money or credit money is that it has um you know it's a, it has monetized or banks monetize the debts that we get into with each other or the credit that we give each other. A bank has monetized that and that is something um, that is extremely powerful. And even if you hate that, I think you need to understand from a monetary perspective um, that money not only needs to keep its value, but it also mm -hmm. needs to enter the economy and get into the hands of people who spend it. Um, and what is crazy about this credit money is that it's 
um, it not only sort of uh, expands and subtracts with economic activity, so it follows the economy, right. it's dynamic, mm-hmm. but it also does, it can do that. It doesn't always, of course, but it can do that right, at exactly right. the right spot. So, for example, an entrepreneur, this is something that um, actually an Austrian economist, Schumpeter, talked about a lot, uh, is that an entrepreneur, so he's known for creative destruction. I don't know if you've heard of this, that, that mm-hmm. entrepreneurship is good and it can sort of offset the balance with innovation. But he also um, had a, a key role for banks and credit creation in that process because a bank can give new money with surgical precision, so to say, to the entrepreneur that needs it. And that is something that gold or Bitcoin doesn't do. That is mind, right? Both is mind. Mm-hmm. It doesn't end up necessarily with the person who needs it the most in the economy. So how to get something into circulation is a question that, that is not often asked, I think, or not in, in asked enough. And credit money is really good at that. And that is very misunderstood. I don't think many people talk about this. When you say credit money, uh, are you referring to in terms of like the reserve ratio and money creation through loans and, and things like that? What is it like for viewers who aren't fully, you know, who might not have a, <laughs> a doctorate in, <laughs> in economics and, and for, uh, you know, people like that, what is it that makes something credit money? And how is that different from, say, money printing? So credit money is um, money that, that is a debt from or liability of someone. Like um, a note, right? That, you know, a dollar, or for example, is a liability of the Federal Reserve. Okay, most people know this, I think. That's, that's, but a, a deposit in a, in a bank that you have, like a deposit account, is a liability of of that bank. So when right. you get a loan at a bank, the that bank will create that money. Um, this was mm-hmm. super controversial when I got into economics. Um, but I think it's largely accepted. I think very many, you know, sort of central bank, central bankers, also banks, academics have written papers about this. And I think this is mainly is very much accepted. Um, mm-hmm. However, uh, so so that is credit money. So banks create money when they, they make a loan. I mean, the best way to understand this is to draw a balance sheet. Uh, but that, then you get into very dry stuff, uh, which which you know, viewers <laughs> will just have to go to my channel, I, I think. Okay, there you go. Well, if you uh, if you have a video on it, I'll be happy to link it in the description below if people want to kind of learn more about that. Um, yeah. But we're kind of getting close to the to the our time limit. Um, before I, I send you off, I, I wanted to give you a chance for someone who might be interested in economics. You know, you seem to touch on the fact that when it comes to YouTube and things like that. There's some information out there that's populist or, or might not be as accurate or maybe, you know, doesn't give the nuances that are necessary when it comes to discussing economic theories and things like that. For someone who's interested in, in you know, learning about that kind of stuff, what are some tips or resources you would you would suggest for them to look into if they want to learn more? Yeah, I think it's still slim pickings, but... Uh... I think there are some channels out there that's really good to sort of, sort of maybe for people who get into it. Um, okay. In a sense, but for me, they're they're not that interesting because like very often I, I just see them sort of repeating a Wikipedia page with stock footage. Um, right, right. So that's not, I think your audience is, is typically a bit more advanced than, than that. Um, and what I really appreciate or what I, I try to encourage is that people 
at least include their sources uh, under their videos. I think that's that's very important. Um, that I always try to do this myself as well. Um, but there's one channel with whom I'm collaborating uh, on the inflation video that's coming out uh, hopefully uh, fairly soon. Uh, that's right. un Unlearning Economics. Uh, that's also okay. an ac academic, and he is. He is he, I know he does his research. Like like when I see a video of his, I, d I sometimes make response videos to other channels, um, critiquing them. But uh, when I see one of Unlearning Economics, I'm 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 thinking like, wow, okay. Um, I might not agree with everything, but they're it's based on it's all based on thorough research. So if I want to do a response right. video to this, I, you know, I'm like half a year uh, <laughs> later. Right, right. You might have to do another PhD on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And right. um, yeah, and besides that, uh, I've also collaborated with uh, Econoboy, who's is doing it more from a uh, political side and he's uh, not an academic economist but he does he, he does do his research on on various topics uh, i can vouch for that um and also then i think there are some finance channels like like yours and uh, also like patrick boyle oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> oh patrick boyle's great yeah i'm a, I'm a big fan of his yeah right who, who just are professionals who and and like you mentioned you don't have to be a professional to be on youtube i think that that would be mm -hmm. crazy um uh, gatekeeping like you mentioned but uh, you, you often can see it that people have been doing this for a long time and so they try to do honest research um, and you know I know on YouTube you have to be a bit sensationalist as well sometimes but I think there's a fine line between being sensationalist and um, honest or <laughs> sure yeah tweaking the story to be more sensationalist, but no, no longer factually correct. So I think, and some right. channels uh, sometimes cross cross that boundary, and the ones I mentioned, I think, don't. Uh, but other than that, I would also recommend um, some, yeah, some of the more it's, it's perhaps a bit boring, but some of the more established brands like The Economist on YouTube, Financial Times right. on YouTube. I think mm -hmm. you know these are professional channels. Um, they 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 mainly cover sort of mainstream stuff, but they they likely do their research, right? Yeah, and and uh, you know you touch on a good point that you know when it comes to posting stuff, everyone should be able to talk about things and, and things like that. But it's just like anything else. If you wanted to learn about medical conditions, you would probably go to someone who's been medically trained and has experience in, in education. And I think when it comes to economics. People should hold the content they see to that same standard. I, I truly think so, because otherwise you end up with a lot of this misinformation and, and things out there. Um, and, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I can't I was actually doing some research for another video, kind of going through the YouTube videos. And it's crazy. The number uh, crash coming in October, crash coming in November and, and those kind of titles from some of these economic channels. And it's quite quite a shame because, you know, compared to, let's say, like a lifestyle channel, Economics impacts people's lives, and, and I think people need to have a responsibility that and finance when they talk about these sort of topics, right? So I, I think that's one thing that really drew me to your channel. And aside from your academic experience and the stuff you bring to it, uh, just interesting videos. So uh, guys, if you haven't checked out Money Macro, I highly encourage you to do so. Really interesting videos covering a range of topics, all within kind of the economic sphere. Uh, some history stuff, 
you know, in terms of, like I mentioned, the central bank video was a really good one, how central banks came to be, but also, you know, we've done Q and A's as well and, and things like that, taking questions on some of these hot topics. Uh, some of which I'm probably making you repeat here, but you know, I think these are, there's a reason people always ask about these things. They're just they're, it's a high demand subject uh, with the time that we're in with inflation and things like that. Uh, so guys, check out his uh, YouTube channel. He has a blog as well. Are there any other social kind of medias or anything like that that you'd like to mention or, or shout out to viewers? Yeah, for sure. Of course, uh, Richard, an opportunity like this uh, cannot let go uh, unpassed, but um... Of yeah, course. <laughs> no, I, I, I mainly use my blog to to just post my sources there, so so that's uh, I think okay. less less interesting um, because it's just a script for my videos with with sources in them. Uh, but I have right. actually launched a, a second channel which is called Money and Macro Talks, and what I want to do right, there okay. is uh, do for some of the live streams that I do, want to post clips there. So for example, you know I will definitely invite you for a live stream, and then you can see some oh, of I'd the be clips yeah. of us uh, of us talking on that uh, that second channel. Uh, and besides that, I'm, I'm trying to become a bit more active on Twitter and share sort of my research uh, there as well. Um, awesome. Yeah, and that's about it, I think. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I'll leave links to all those things down below. Uh, and I will certainly be keeping tabs on, on the content you put out and, and the Money Macro channel. So Yuri, thank you for joining us today. It's uh, much appreciated. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm sure we'll have many more. I'm sure. Guys, thank you for joining us both. And yeah. We'll uh, see you in the next one. Until then, cheers. Cheers.